chapter 8, uh, we'll pick up in verse 29. We've been um, scaling the walls of Christendom with the Apostle Paul as we look at the book of Romans, which really is uh, the clearest, um, most detailed, and simplest to understand explanation of the Christian life that has ever been written. It is, in a sense, the constitution of what we believe. And so, in chapters 1 through 3, we walked through the lowlands of man's depravity, our utter sinfulness, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that there is not one, not one soul that is good enough uh, to reach heaven or to please God through through behavior or through uh, adherence. And we walked through the halls of redemption in chapters 3 and 4 as Paul took us to the cross, that it was through Jesus Christ, through his blood, uh, through the sacrifice, the offering of himself on the cross, that our sins have been nailed there forever, that we've been redeemed from uh, our sinful depravity through the blood of Christ, and that now by faith in his name, and by faith alone in his name, we are saved and brought near to God. Then he brought us in chapter 5 into the treasures of mercy. And so what do we have now that we're saved? And so we have peace with God. We have access to God. We have perspective for our lives. We have the Holy Spirit of God shed abroad in our hearts. We have the love of God now as an assurance to us. We have trials that make sense. We understand the context of suffering and why we suffer. And so these treasures that are ours now because we're saved. And then in chapters 6 through 7, he's taken us through the struggles now, the, the, the rocky terrain, the rough ground of sanctification, learning to die in order to live. And what it means to wrestle with this flesh and to see God change it and kill it. Uh, we do the things that we don't want to do. We don't do the things that we wish we were doing. You know, when we have this wrestling match that's going on inside of us, as God is forming the person of Christ inside and removing all of the old self, he didn't save us to leave us the way that we were. And so we know this struggle. We're all familiar with it. We live in this struggle daily uh, of trying to die to the old and live to the new. And there's this wrestling match back and forth. And so Paul takes us through that in 6 and 7. And then as we come to chapter 8, where we've been for the past uh, little while now, we've really slowed our progress on purpose, because here we've reached uh, kind of the top, and we're walking along this ridge now, where we have this view uh, that gives us perspective and to, to make sense of all of it, uh, where we've come from, where we've been, where we're going, and we see the glory of what's to come, uh, the, the glory of heaven and what awaits us, and just the glory, probably the most amazing chapter in all of the Bible is Romans chapter 8 as it just explains all these things to us. And so Paul has told us here by the Spirit of God that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That we are no longer under any condemnation at all from God. We've been completely removed from that. That we are now subjects to a higher law no longer under the law of sin and death that, that, that damned us, that condemned us, but now we are under the law of the spirit of life. There's a higher force that's in us that has carried us out of depravity and is moving us into holiness. We've been given the Holy Spirit that enables victory, 
that empowers us to live the life that God has called us to, that causes us to grow, that moves us forward, that we have progress in the things of God, and that now even the sufferings that we endure uh, serve a purpose, that God is doing something through those things. He makes all things work together for good to those that love him and those that are called according to his purpose, uh, what we looked at last time. And so we're partakers of him, and he's working all things for our good. And that's kind of where we are. That's where we stand right now uh, on things as we look at what God has done for us, is that everything that he does in our lives makes sense, and it's for a purpose. And so now he takes us from there, and as we look at the back uh, the back nine, if you will, the back half of um, of this calling that we have. Uh, I want to pick up in verse 29, but just as a springboard, look at verse 28, because the, the word that pushes us forward is in this verse. It says that we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and to them who are, and here it is, the called. And you might not have it put that way. I don't know what translation you're reading, but uh, but he actually gives it like a definite article. Like he says, the called, not just those who are called, but those who are the called and thus making it a group of people. He's kind of segregating a cross section of humanity and he's he's putting it in a, in a, in a space where he's saying that this is the called. And so the uh, collective whole of what we would call God's people, Paul now gives him that title. And he says that, that we are the called, that we have been separated, set apart, we belong to God, uh, and then called, of course, according to his purpose. And so we know that all things are working together for uh, good. So um, when I traveled last weekend, I landed in, in the Indianapolis airport at uh, 10.20, and that was about as far as my, my specific plans went. I knew I was landing in the airport, and I knew some somewhere in Indianapolis was a van that I was picking up for the church. But I didn't know where it was. I didn't know uh, um, the address, where I was supposed to go. I hoped I had the documentation right, but I figured if I could get 1,500 miles to Indianapolis, the rest was going to work out. the last 20 miles uh, I'll figure out when I get there you know what I mean there's taxis and Ubers and different different things and all so I had a contact number and I had a um a check from the church, and that was about my luggage. You know, I had a change of clothes <laughs> in, a, in a small, um, one of those small knapsacks that you throw over your shoulder, and, and that was it. You know, and, and the thing worked out so seamlessly uh, that once I landed in the airport, I texted the people, and I said, okay, tell me where to come now. And they said, we're pulling up to the airport with your van right now. And I said, oh, great, you know. So I figured that they would pick me up and we'd go to their office and, you know, do whatever. And so, uh, you know, this lady pulls up and I said, all right, where do we go from here? She goes, no, this is it. She goes, um, my boss is actually here at the airport because he had to meet someone else. So we'll do everything right here and you can just leave from here. And I was like, oh, sweet, you know. So I was like, what do you need from me? She's like, basically just a check, you know. <laughs> so, so I'm like, all right, well, you know, let me look it over real quick. So I open up the hood. So I'm sitting there literally right where people drop off their luggage. And, and you know, and I'm sitting right there and I'm looking through this van, you know, checking everything out, you know. And thankfully, you can see the thing is brand new. It didn't really need much examination. It was in very good condition and, and all, you know. So I, I paid the thing and, and went my way. I drove from there. I went to Cincinnati to my brother's house. I mean, it was just really seamless, real easy. But I was telling Bobby and Mike about, about this when I g- came home. And um, 
And they, Bobby said, how do you do that? He goes, I need to know where I am. He goes, I need to know where I'm going. I need to know what's going to happen. I need to have, have the itinerary. Like, he's like, I don't know how, he's like, I was in Israel and I was freaking out because I didn't know, where am I? I need to know where I am, you know, this whole thing. And I, and I was like, I don't know. I just kind of knew it was going to work out, you know, this whole thing, you know. But, you know, that's a whole lot like life, isn't it? Like, you know, when we think about, um, you know, where we are, you know, uh, in just the chaos of the daily life, you know, where am I? <laughs> I what, where am I going? What's going to happen? Where will I be in five years? How is this going to work out with my kids? You know, where, you know, and we have all these, these things and, and we wish we had like this itinerary that was just laid out for us. Like this is going to happen when you get here and then, and then you're going to go here and you'll be there for 20 minutes and that you'll need this and make sure you have, and we wish we had that, but we don't. And we're just kind of like walking through this thing, wondering if it's all going to work out. And what God is basically saying to us this year, he's saying, listen, if you have your salvation, and if you have your sins forgiven in my son, and if you have my spirit living in your heart, and if you have my word as your guide, and if you have a desire and a love for me to walk in my ways, it's going to work out. You're going to see that you'll, you'll get where you're going. Things are going to happen at the right time. The liaison is going to be there, and it's going to work out. And we can walk in that confidence. And that's what he's saying to us here. He's saying that we know that all things work together for good to those that love him and those that are the called according to his purpose. Now, why is it that that works out? Why? How? You know, what's the deal? How can I know? And that's what we want, right? How can I know that, that all things are going to work out for the good? How can I know? that he's really for me and that there's not a train wreck coming right around the corner. Well, that's where he goes from here. Notice what he says in verse 29. And it begins with the word for. It's a reason word. So he's reasoning here. And he says, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed into the image of his son, that he, that is Jesus, might be the firstborn, or the first in an order, essentially, among many brethren. That this whole, that he is the captain, in a sense, or the first one in the group that we are uh, calling the call. So he basically says three things in this, uh, this one verse. He said, one, whom he did foreknow, that is, that God had foreknowledge of those who would be called, and the word foreknowledge in the, in the Greek language, it's pro-gnosko, which pro is before, and gnosko is knowledge or, or intimate knowledge of something. And so he's basically saying there is that those that would be called were foreknown by God. So he already knew, not just before you were born, but before even the creation of the world, the Bible tells us, he already knew that you would be part of the called. It says in Revelation chapter 13, verse 9, and it's talking about um, the, the beast and the Antichrist. And it, actually, I wrote the verse down so that in case my memory failed. It says in uh, the Revelation 13, 8, it says that all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. This is the beast, the, the, false, Christ, the false messiah in the end times. It says, whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So God, from the foundation of the world, from the time that he said, let there be light, he already knew, he foreknew all those who would make up this group of people that were the called. 
And so that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, whom he did foreknow, it says them, he also, and here's the second thing, he did predestinate. And so pre, again, is before, and a destiny is where you will end up. So he determined beforehand the destiny of those whom he foreknew, those the called, and what did he predetermine them for? He tells us that's the third thing in the verse. It says to be conformed to the image of his son. And so he foreknew, thus he predestined the called to be conformed into the image of his son. Now that sheds a lot of light on things, doesn't it? I mean, first of all, it reveals his will, doesn't it? What is God's will for every one of our lives, those of us that are called? His will is that we be conformed into the image of his son, Jesus. And so if you want to know what God's doing in your life, if you want to know why the things are happening that are happening to you, you need look no further than to see the person of the Son of God in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And furthermore, throughout from Genesis to Revelation, because it all speaks of him. And so if you want to know what God's doing and where you're going, that's the answer. Read, read the life of Christ. Read his nature. Read the way that he dealt with people. Read the priorities that he had and the things that drove him. That's what God is seeking to shape and form in you and I. And all of the things that we go through in this life, all of our experiences, the trials, the difficulties, the victories, the desires, the service, everything that we are and do is driving us towards that end. That's his will and desire for us is that we be conformed into his image. So it sheds light into it. It also gives us perspective to why we suffer. I mean, that's kind of half the context of the whole chapter, isn't it? You know, he spent like 10 verses earlier in chapter 8 talking about the sufferings that we go through. When it talks about all things working together for good, this is the good that he's talking about. And so why does it happen? Because he's seeking to conform us into the image of his son that he might be the first among many brethren. Now, verse 30, moreover, on top of this, he says, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Now, interesting thing that happens here is that we, we, we come to this um, place where there's a debate. And the debate is this, the question is this. When you and I came into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, did he choose me or did I choose him? Yes. <laughs> you know. Well, that's simple enough. Let's move on. <laughs> and, and there has been a, a debate that has never been resolved to the present day. Uh, to, to, that is to answer that question. Did he choose me or did I choose him? And so on the one side of that debate, the fact that he chose us is where we get this word predestination, that he predetermined uh, where I would be, and thus he did the choosing. And that is uh, kind of traditionally what we would call a Calvinist view. And so someone who would call themselves a Calvinist, or when they say they're a Calvinist, or 100% Calvinist, or a five-point Calvinist, basically what they're saying is that God chose us to be saved and that you and I had no say in the matter, it was an irresistible grace, and that there was nothing that you and I could do. We were getting saved, whether we liked it or not, because God already chose it from the beginning of the world, and so we're just saved. We're saved that we're saved. 
And that's kind of a Calvinist, uh, staunch Calvinist view. Now, on the other side of it, you have the responsibility of man. And then the Bible teaches both things. And so the Bible teaches predestination. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. It says, according that he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. That's predestination. <laughs> Ephesians 1, 11 and 12. It says, in whom also we have an obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. That's predestination. John chapter 15, verse 16. These are the words of Jesus. Jesus said, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. That's predestination, that he chose us. John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus said, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. Well, that's predestination, that God was the one that initiated and drew us to him. And Jesus says, I will raise him up at the last day. Uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 48 um, actually, I don't want to share that verse yet. I'll share that one later. You know, but, but you get the idea is that the Bible teaches predestination. But at the same time, the Bible also teaches that you and I have a responsibility to choose, that we have a decision to make, that, that we have free will, and that God doesn't violate our free will, and that we're not robots wherein God just flips a light switch and makes us say, I accept you, God, I love you, God, but we actually make a choice. And so on the other side of the Calvinist view is what's kind of known as the Armenianist view. Uh, Armin, or Arm, Ar, whatever his name was, he was another uh, kind of theologian, and his thing is that, you know, we have, we choose, is that man has a responsibility to choose, and that it isn't just predestination, that there's more to it than that. Well, the Bible does teach that man has the responsibility to make a decision. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, it says, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? God leaving the responsibility with man to make decisions for his own life. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, God says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Now, if man had no responsibility, God could just flip the switch inside man's intellect and he would just do whatever God wanted him to do. But God says, let's reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you be willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. God gives an ultimatum. He says, you choose what you're going to do with your life. Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, the very closeout of the Bible. God says that the spirit and the bride say, come. And him that let him that hears say, come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will. 
That's the will of man. Whoever wants, let him take the water of life freely. And so God lays something out there, and then he gives a choice whether or not someone is going to receive it. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, that is for the second coming, the return of Christ, but is long-suffering or patient toward us. Why? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so God leaves the door open. Jesus would say in John chapter 6, verse 37, that him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. And so those that choose to come to him won't be cast away. John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him, not just those that were called would believe in him, would have everlasting life. And so the Bible teaches predestination and that God is sovereign over who will be called and saved. But at the same time, that doesn't remove the decision or the will or the responsibility of man to make the decision to come to Christ, to turn from his sins, and to follow him, to want heaven. One time a theologian was asked in a conference uh, if he was a Calvinist or an Arminianist. And he said that he was neither. He said, I'm no man's disciple, and I don't want any man to be my disciple. He said, if I, uh, he says, if I were a Calvinist, then I would be taking away from, I would be robbing man of his responsibility to make his choice before a holy God. And if I were an Armenianist, I would be robbing God of his sovereignty. He said, I'm not interested in robbing anyone. <laughs> and he said, furthermore, he said, I'm not called to feed giraffes. I'm called to feed sheep. <laughs> and he said, and he said, trying to figure out, uh, trying to figure out how these two things go together is beyond me. And it's beyond the mind of any man that has ever lived. And so what we see as we look at the Bible is that these things, though they are seemingly contradictory, they are in fact harmonious in the economy and from the viewpoint or vantage point of God. From man's perspective, they cannot be resolved, but from God's perspective, the two things go together. Now, there are a few verses that combine these concepts and help us understand, though they don't give perfect clarity. John chapter 6, verse 37 says, All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. Okay, so Jesus said also, no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me, draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And so you see God wooing man to make a decision for Christ. And, and of course, the thing that probably blends him better than any other is what we just read in Romans 8.29, where it says, whom he did foreknow, them he also did predestinate. So, in other words, God, in his foreknowledge, knew ahead of time who would respond and choose him, because God can't not know something, right? <laughs> you know? And so he knew ahead who would choose him, and those he also then called. Those were the ones that were predestinated. Now, that still has some problems, because you, you know, start to think that through, and you say, well, does that mean that God predestines people to go to hell, and, you know, and well, now i got problems with other scriptures, you know, and all of a sudden, the check engine light goes right back on, and you say, I can't figure this whole thing out, you know. If I were to hold up to you um, right now um, a two-dimensional uh, um, shape of, of a triangle, 
you know, and from where from where you're sitting, uh, I hold this up and I asked you what it was. Every single one of you in this room that's educated would, would say to me that that's a triangle. It has three sides. They're all connected. There's three angles. That's a triangle. By every definition, by without contradiction, that's a triangle. However, there could possibly be someone in the room uh, at a certain pr- position that could say, no, that's a circle. And you would say, oh, God, one of these. <laughs> you know? And they would say, no, 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 that has absolutely no straight line in it whatsoever. There's not one angle on that, on that uh, figure at all. It is completely uh, ocular, and there is, that is a circle uh, by, by pure definition. And you could get into an argument back and forth, and you could point to your three angles, and you could say it's a triangle, and they could point to their uh, arc, and they could say that's a circle, and you would just argue to death, and no one would ever, because you're looking at the same thing from different directions. If I told you then that that thing that you were looking at is actually a cone, and I turned the angle of it so that you could see it from the bottom up, then you would say, oh, it's a circle. (laughs) And what happens is, what did I do? I added dimension. And when I added dimension to something that you could only see from one angle, it became two things wherein you thought it could only be one thing. And what we have is we have a God who sits outside of the dimensional reality that we are limited to. And from his vantage point, something can be true that from our vantage point seems like it is impossible or is an impossibility. So for us, we look at this and we say, well, it's either a circle or a triangle. And people argue their points and their positions. But from where God is, he looks at it and he says, like Matt said about 20 minutes ago, yes. Both things, both things are, in fact, true. And so uh, you guys can think about that and carry, <laughs> carry it even further. What I'm thankful for is that he chose me. And I'm thankful that he won me to a place where I chose him. Notice the next verse, and I love, or the next word, and I love the next word in this whole thing uh, in verse 30. It says, Whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And I absolutely love um, this word called that he uses here uh, in this thing, because basically what this word called talks about or speaks of is that time in your life and in my life when God breached the barriers of time and space and got somehow a hold of our hearts and won us to the conviction that he was true and that he was real. This is the the word, you could kind of circle it and, and just remember it in your mind, where every single person's testimony is uh, validated in this or revealed, is the calling. The, the, that everyone whom God foreknew and predestinated, at some point in their existence, he called them. And so I think of the Apostle Paul, who at first was a man whose name was Saul of Tarsus. And he was a Jew, he was educated, he was smart. He was a hater of Christians and of Christ. He was a persecutor of the church. He was a murderer of the disciples of the Lord. He was filled with hatred and bitterness, though he carried with him all of the outward uh, showings of religion and, uh, and righteousness and holiness. And it was at a set time in his life, while he was on the road to Damascus, riding his horse with letters uh, from the chief priests in order to persecute Christians in the city of Damascus in Syria. It was then that God reached into his life, and there was a light that shined brighter than the noonday sun. It blinded his sight, but he heard a voice audibly that spoke to him and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And he said, who are you, Lord? And Paul replied and he said, uh, or I'm sorry, Jesus replied and he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. 
And at that point, Jesus reached into this life of this man who was under conviction already. He said, you're kicking against something. You know it. You know there's something more. You know there's truth in this. And he was at that point called. And over the course of the next three days, and the events that happened over those three days, a man came and prayed for him, shared with him. His eyes were healed. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he left the room a different man. There was a called that happened at that point, And he went from being Saul of Tarsus to Paul the Apostle. And for every single person that makes up this group of people that are the called, there's a moment or a, a span of time in your life that God reached into your existence, revealed himself in a supernatural way, made you aware of his truth, his reality, his, his cross, your guilt and sin and salvation, and God got a hold of you and he got a hold of me. For me, it was a period of, of years. It took a long time. I remember my first exposure to the gospel. It was a man by the name of Kurt Griffin. He was a senior in high school. I was a freshman. He had been a headbanger, you know, long hair and black clothes and Megadeth shirt and the whole thing. And God got a hold of his life. And he didn't cut his hair and he didn't change his clothes, but he carried a Bible with him everywhere he went. And he lived the life. He, he lived the life. He was holy as a senior in high school, I remember. And, and I remember marking him with my mind and with my eyes. And he would share with me and he'd talk to me and invite me to his Bible study that he, he held after school. And he, he was always trying to get kids to come with him to church and to youth group. And he was full of joy and full of life. And there was something so real and so different about Kurt Griffin. And, and, and there was something that got in. There was an awareness. And from that point on, I knew who the Christians were. I knew, I watched them, and I couldn't shake the fact that there was something in their life. And then God started doing this thing where he started saving all of my friends and my girlfriends. So I'd make friends with some people, they'd get saved. I'd get a girlfriend, she'd get saved. And I'm going, God, you're stealing all my friends and my girlfriends. This is, this is horrible, you know. And I, and I had a very hard heart towards the things of God. And I moved through my entire high school years kind of under this conviction, but resisting it and watching all these things happen. And then when Georgia, who had been my girlfriend for two years, got saved, she became a Christian. And she came to me and she said, if you don't know Jesus... She didn't say, I'm leaving you forever. That wasn't her word. But she, what she said was, is that we'll be building our lives on different blueprints and it won't work. She said, it won't work. I'm not, I can't go back from, from this direction that I've gone. And, and that day, I refused the gospel. I said, I don't, I don't want this in my life. I'm never going to be Ned Flanders. I'm sorry. Uh, you're going to have to go. That's what I said to her. Those were my words. And I said, you're going to have to go this road alone. And, and we broke up that day. And from that time, when I, when, and it wasn't the breakup. It was my refusal of Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I said, no. To the, to the question that was put to me that day. From that day, for two years, my life went into a tailspin. And, and everything that I enjoyed in life became misery to me. My personality started to change. My ability to, to even talk to people was taken away from me. And I started to, to literally just go insane, just into a tailspin. And after two years, I hit a low point. Uh, where it was going to be either God or suicide. And that was what, what I was up against at that time as a 19-year-old young man. And I remember uh, it was the last week of summer vacation. 
I had nothing to do. The depression was so bad I wanted to die. And I took my good news Catholic Bible. I threw it in the back of my car and I just drove and didn't know if I'd ever come back. I drove from Rochester to Ithaca where Georgia was. She was um, at the college um, helping with a piano camp. And I left a little post-it note on her car that just said, I need God. If, if you can help me find him, I need help. And I just left it under her windshield and I drove from Ithaca into Pennsylvania. I drove into the woods. I camped out by this little river. I had no tent, no plan, nothing. All I had was my good news Catholic Bible. I started a fire and went to sleep by this fire. I woke up in the morning. I grabbed the Good News Catholic Bible and I opened it up to like this. I went, Bible, we're like, that's what happened. And it opened to Romans chapter one, verse one. And I said, God, if you're real, I'll do anything you want. If you're real, I'll wear, I'll shave my head and wear a robe. I'll put on a barbed wire suit. I'll, I'll chastise myself. I'll do anything, but I need to know you're real because I can't live for, 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 a, a, a superstition or an idea. I need to know you're real. And I started to read Romans chapter 1, verse 1, and for the first time in my life, after being brought up in a church, after being exposed to the Bible and Bible stories, after being witnessed and shared to, for the first time in my life, the Bible made sense. I read the words and something changed. What once was foreign and strange and incomprehensible was now clear and distinct, and I could, I could understand it, and I could see it, and I could even apply it to my life. There was something, it was just the Bible, but there was something that changed that day. And I read the entire book of Romans, and something inside of me, something changed. I was called. It took four years, or five years, or six years maybe, but I was called. And at that moment, the Father drew me, the Son saved me, the Spirit sealed me. And I went from being drawn and predestined and called to now, what's the next thing he says? It says, Though, moreover, those whom he called, he also then justified. To be justified is more than just to be forgiven. To be forgiven is that you, you, know, you sinned and you know, that sin is on your record and I forgive you that sin. And you're forgiven that sin, but that sin is still there. You did it. You're not paying the penalty for it, but you did it. That's not what it means to be justified. To be justified means that you're declared innocent. And there's a big difference between declared forgiven and declared innocent. Innocent means you didn't do it. You know, uh, I remember one of the jobs I had um, as an early Christian was as a carpenter in Rochester, and we built the, the new prison there, eight-story prison that they built. It's not a prison, it's a jail, you know, the county jail. And I remember that they had to put all the prisoners in temporary you know, places, and we were around them all the time, and they would just hang out the windows, and they would say, I'm innocent. I'm innocent. And they would just say that all the time. Yeah, you're innocent. You know? <laughs> sure. You know, I'm innocent. You know, they claimed innocence, even though they knew they were guilty. But when we're justified by Jesus Christ, it is not just a forgiveness of a sin that we're still guilty of. He takes the sin upon himself, and thereby we are justified. The word justified means just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. Justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. 
And that's the way God looks at us. That's what happens when we come to God through Jesus Christ. Them whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, I love this, them he also glorified. Do you see that that's in the past tense? The glorified is the finished product. The glorified is you and I in heaven with new bodies. All the old and the past things put away. And us moving into our eternal future. Eternal habitation with the Lord. And the amazing thing is that if you've been predestined by God from the foundation of the world to be a part of the called, then he already sees you as glorified. It's an inheritance that's incorruptible, that's undefiled, that's reserved in heaven for you. And that God sees us in that way, that we are glorified in his presence. So, what then shall we say to these things? What's the logical afterthought? You know, okay, what does this mean? There's no condemnation. All things are working together for good. The Spirit of God is at work in my life, conforming me into the image of Christ. What does all this mean? What's the result of all this? How does this apply when I leave this Bible study then here this morning? Moreover, or I'm sorry, uh, what shall we then say to these things? And here's the conclusion of it. It's a beautiful conclusion. He says, if God be for us, that is, if God is for us or on our side, then who can be against us? If God knew ahead of time, Everything that you would ever do in your life, everything that you would ever be from the day that you were born until the day that you died. And if he agreed, having that knowledge beforehand, that he was going to forgive all of your sins and he was going to be willing to put them upon his son. If he looked at the spreadsheet of everything you ever did, ever thought, ever were, before you even lived a day of your life, and at that point, Agreed. Okay, I'll take all those sins. Back in the semi-truck. Bring those sins. Lay them on me. Throw them on. Put them on the cross. Hurl the wrath of those sins. Put them upon me. I'm, I'm doing it. Knowing all of that ahead of time, if he did that, and then he still called you, if God be for us, then who can be against us? He says, furthermore, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If he didn't spare his own son. I want you to think about this for just a moment. If you, let's say you knew a man in your life, a human man, who is extremely respectable and look, you know, looked up to, and a man of upright character, and accomplished much, and very successful, and, and just had an amazing family, and his children were uh, productive, and, and, and respectful, and respectable, and the whole thing. And all of a sudden, it was revealed that that son, the son of that man, who was a good son, good man, turned out to be like a child pornographer, or turned out to be a pedophile, or a rapist, or something like that. Imagine what that would do uh, to that man, his reputation, to that son and his reputation and the character, you know, that he had. I mean, that would, that would be a huge blight. It would be a huge tarnish. It would be a black spot on something that otherwise would have been extremely, uh, um, you, you know, bright and, and good, you know. Or imagine this. Take it one step further. Let's say there was a man who was a real piece of dirt. I mean, he was the child pornographer. 
or the, or the rapist or the drug peddler, or the person that just corrupted. I mean, he was just human corruption. Everything he touched, everything he did was just corruption. And there were authorities that were watching this man because of his guilt and, and, and they were getting ready, they were building their case against him. And so they had all their evidence and they, they had uh, tapped into all the computers and they had all the, 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 you know, the, 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 the pictures and the web history and they had, they had testimony of all kinds of things and they were just getting ready to make their final bust and there was a sting set up in a Las Vegas hotel room. And they were just waiting for the man to come into his hotel room. And as soon as he came in the room, that would be the nail in the coffin that would link him to all of the evidence. And the case would be built and he'd be brought in. Now what would happen if at that moment, right before that man was going to make his way into that hotel room, I found out about it. And I was a respectable, good, upright man. And I looked at my son whom I've raised to be a respectable and upright son, and whom I have nothing but the best hope and intention for in his life and for his future. And I said, son, I want you to do something. And I know what I'm going to ask you to do right now is, is, is a big thing. I know it's going to have eternal consequences, and it's going to change your life forever, and it's going to change our family forever. But son, what I want you to do is I want you to walk down this hall right now, and I want you to walk in that room. And I want all the evidence... And all the sin, and all of the corruption, and all of the wickedness, and all the destroyed lives, and all of the ruin that that man caused in his life, I want it to fall on you. And son, the price is going to be that when the newspaper is published in the morning, the picture on the front page is going to be yours. And when they smear your reputation, and they say, this man lived a double life, and he was a hypocrite, and he put himself forth to be this, but really, meanwhile, he was all of this. That's going to fall on you, and everyone in the world is going to see that. And the shame of it is going to be felt by you, and people are going to throw it in your face, and then, son, you're going to pay the penalty. You're going to stand before the judge, and you're going to be declared guilty of all these things, and I want you to submit to that guilt. And then whatever the sentence is, and it's probably going to be the death sentence, son, because of the things that this man has done. But I want you, son, to take that penalty. And I want you to do it as a lamb, silent before her shearers. Don't defend yourself. Don't stand up for your reputation. Don't say it wasn't really me. You're going to feel it. And son, one more thing. Supernaturally, I'm going to deceive myself into believing that it's actually true. Son, I'm going to flip a switch and I'm going to know that it was you. I'm going to really think and believe that it was you. And I'm going to feel towards you the same shame and wrath and confusion and disdain for you as though you had done all these things. And I'm going to feel that. And you're going to feel that. And we're going to do this. My son would look at me and say, Dad, what? Are you crazy? Why? I know, son, it's crazy. But I love that man. And I know that there's something redeemable there. And I know why he does the things he does and why he is the way that he is. And if that condition was not in him, I know he would be something altogether. And I know, son, that through this, 
that sin can be removed from the man completely. That he can be changed and redeemed. And that this can have a all things work together for good ending for everybody. My love for that man motivates us, son, me and you, to take the shame upon ourselves. That's exactly what God did in sparing not his own son. Is that all of the sin and the filth and the shame that you and I have committed and caused in our life, God let his son take the blame for it. Our rap sheet was literally exposed upon him. He became the guilt of it. When Jesus was in the Garden of Eden, and he said, I'm sorry, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus said, why? He said, why have you forsaken me? It was the first time that the Son of God ever said the word why, not knowing something. At that moment, he was separated from the Father's love. The Father turned his face away. The Father treated Jesus as though he actually was guilty. Hurled the shame and the wrath upon him. Jesus felt the shame of every sin. And what Paul is saying here is that, listen, if God, knowing everything that you would do, allowed his son to be exposed to that level of shame, contempt, and wrath... If he allowed that to happen for you, then how much more will he not now freely give us all things? And the context of that is not, oh, give me a million dollars, God. But the things that we need in order to bring us from here to eternity, the good things that we need, the necessary things for our life, all that's within his knowledge and his will that is good for us, What Paul is saying is that if God is for us, then we're not going to come up short as it relates to this salvation that we've been given. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Listen, if God justified you and made it as though you never sinned, if God, who is the judge, justified you, then who can now tarnish your reputation? Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. The intercessor is the attorney. The one who pleads for, the defense attorney. So if God is the judge, and Jesus is the defense attorney, and you and I are the defendant, listen, this thing is all wrapped up. (laughs) Right? We can't be condemned. No one can lay anything to your charge. He says, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's life? Well, Satan's going to try, isn't he? The Bible says that he's the accuser of the brethren. People are going to try. Our own conscience is going to try. But if God the judge has already laid our sin on Christ, and Christ lives to make intercession for us, hey, Father, I paid for that. I've removed them from under the jurisdiction of that law. There's no case here. The Father throws it away. So then, if God is for us, who can be against us? The answer is nothing. Question number two, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So question one was, who can be against us? The answer is, if God is for you, then no one. Question two is, what then shall separate us from the love of Christ? If he has decided to love you, 
if he has set his love upon you, is there anything that can separate you from that love? And so Paul asks the question. He says, shall tribulation? Tribulation is stress, pressure. Or distress, that's a squeeze or a narrowing when you're walking down a road and the walls are closing in on you. You guys know what that's like, right? Stress, distress. Paul said that we were stressed, distressed beyond measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. You guys know what that feels like? I do. To be in a place where you're so distressed by a situation or a place that you are in your life that you feel like you can't even survive it. Paul said we had the sentence of death within ourselves. I know what that feels like. And what Paul is saying here is saying, listen, if you're in a place like that where you're in distress, you're being squeezed, is that an evidence that God no longer loves you or that you're separated from the love of Christ? That's the question that he's asking. How about persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Now watch this. I love it. Verse 36. He says, as it is written... For thy sake, we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. He's quoting from the Old Testament, from the Psalms. And then he says this, verse 37, Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. In other words, listen, guys, here's what it means. It means that no matter where you are, an airport in Indianapolis or Tel Aviv, or wherever you are in your life, in the middle of a career that you don't understand why you're there, or in the middle of a family situation that seems impossible, or in the middle of a financial struggle that seems like it has no outcome or no good conclusion, or whether you're being persecuted or hated by someone unjustly, or no matter what the situation, or you're in danger, legitimate danger, maybe from a health issue, listen, that is not at all an evidence that you're separated from the love of God. Those things are not happening to you because God is angry at you or because you're under some condemnation or because you've grieved his spirit or sinned yourself out of his pleasure or his favor. He already knew beforehand where you would be even at this point. You say, well, then why are those things happening? Listen, he said, as it is written, for your sake, we're killed all the day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Suffering is a part of this life. And suffering is a part of the all things that are working together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. So the higher truth that stands in whatever circumstance I'm in is that he loves me. I'm not separated from his love in this. I'm not separated from his justification in this. I'm not separated from the calling I have in eternal glory Because of this. He's with me. And if God is for me, then who can be against me? Can this situation separate me from the love of Christ? The answer is no. In all these things, we're more than conquerors. We're going to come through it. For I am persuaded, verse 38, that neither death nor life. Now, that pretty much, he could stop right there, right? I mean, is there anything more than that? (laughs) The rest is just redundant after it. I mean, if, if death can't separate us from the love of Christ, I mean, what's the worst thing that could happen to you today? Actually, death isn't the worst thing that could happen, right? <laughs> it's harder to live sometimes than it is to die. But he says that neither death nor life, 
anything that this life can throw at us. Nor angels or principalities. It literally, it, it would be angels or demons. That neither angels or demons or powers, those are authorities, whether human or spiritual. Nor things present, those are circumstances in the present moment. Or things to come, future circumstances, what life is going to look like in the future. Nor height, nor depth, those are highs and lows, right? We all go through highs and lows in our life. Sometimes the highs are more dangerous than the lows, right? I know the times I'm most vulnerable are the times when I'm doing really well. The depths, I'm probably safer, but I hate it, right? (laughs) But he says the heights or the depths, and I love this, nor any other creature. Now, the only creature on that list that I'm worried about is this one. Because I think, yeah, I get it. No one can can sabotage my relationship with Christ. No one can bring condemnation against me or a case. No angel or demon can influence. No circumstance. I get all that. I'm not worried about that. I'm going to mess it up. Right? I'm the one that's going to screw up this whole salvation thing. No, no, no. You're part of any other creature, right? Nor any other creature what will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is it because of what God has done, motivated by love, in sending His Son to take the sin, that you and I might be justified, sanctified, glorified the depths and lengths that he went through to call us and reach us and win us to make the decision that we made to follow him and now all the things that he's working out in our life our eternity is secured before him our inheritance is secured in his presence we belong to him and nothing is going to separate us from that love that's been given to us in christ jesus There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no separation between us and God because of Christ Jesus. And while we move from here to eternity, no matter what happens in our life, all things are working together for good to them that love God and are called according to His purpose. This is an amazing gospel. An amazing God. And so we look at from the heights, the high peak, the perspective that brings it all together. And from here we'll move on into chapter 9 where he waxes theological with a reason, with a purpose.